Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast with a quick take on Monday's Supreme Court decisions. The court handed down a significant ruling on abortion, saying in essence that the state of Texas went too far regulating clinics there that perform abortions. We're going to talk about that case and what it means as well as a few others. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Scott Detrow, campaign reporter. And joining us on the podcast for the first time in at least a little while, we have Nina Totenberg, our legal affairs correspondent. Hey, Nina. Hi. Just another day at the office, eh? (laughs) Pretty big day. Uh, This abortion decision is, uh, somebody we all know would say huge. Several people we know would say huge. Huge, huge. Well, so I've heard that this is being called the biggest abortion case in two decades. That's probably right, because... Two decades ago, in 92, the Supreme Court narrowed Roe versus Wade. It said states could regulate abortion more, but they could not do so in a manner that imposed any sort of substantial obstacle or a substantial burden on a woman's right to have an abortion. And that was the the meat of the question that the court was trying to answer with today's ruling? That's correct, because Texas adopted, you may recall Wendy Davis, the state legislator in pink tennis shoes, trying to filibuster this law. This was a law that imposed a whole bunch of restrictions on clinics and on the doctors. And today, the Supreme Court struck those down by a five to three vote. Yeah, the two key requirements were that uh, doctors performing these abortions would have to have admitting rights in hospitals within 30 miles. And the other piece of this was uh, changing code uh, for uh, facilities that perform abortions to make them much more hospital-like in terms of the physical requirements there. And and why this is such a big deal is because Texas passed these laws and several other states, I think about a dozen or more states have have either one of these restrictions or both of these restrictions. And and this set of laws basically became the game plan for uh, abortion rights opponents in terms of trying to minimize the number of facilities performing these procedures. And clinics were arguing, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they were arguing, this is onerous. We can't do this. We, we simply can't meet these requirements, but also that they were medically unnecessary. Is that right? Well, already, because the law was in effect for a period of time, the number of clinics in the state dropped from 40 to 19. And the estimates were that it would go down to seven or eight. Only a few could meet these restrictions, which require wide hospital-like corridors, big operating rooms, uh, one-way traffic within the clinic, all kinds of things that are where they would have to rebuild in order to comply with these regulations. What he said in his opinion is that the surgical center requirement, like the admitting privileges requirement, he said, provide few, if any, health benefits for women. They pose a substantial obstacle to women seeking abortions, and they constitute an undue burden on a woman's constitutional right to do so. And I just want to say one other thing. To sort of prove his point, and I thought it was pretty telling in his announcement, he said, in Texas, if you want to have a colonoscopy in a doctor's office, you can do that. You don't have to go to a surgical center. And the mortality risk for a colonoscopy is way higher than it is for abortion. If you want to have a child at home, you can do that. And the mortality risk from childbirth is way, way higher than the way less than 1% mortality risk for an abortion. So the ruling then is that these restrictions were not just onerous, but unnecessary. Yes. So, uh, Nina, we were saying before that that so many states have similar uh, laws in place. Are all those laws on hold as of right now? How does this typically work when when the court rules on something that that so many states have one version or, or another of? I think the last time I looked, 
there were at least 20 states that had at least one of these provisions. In most of those places, the federal courts in those states and in those regions had blocked them from going into effect. And Texas and the Fifth Circuit had not blocked them. And all of those laws in the other states now will stay blocked. And if they haven't been blocked, if there's some areas where they haven't been blocked, and I believe there are some, um, they will now be dead. We've been paying a lot of attention to the missing ninth justice, the empty seat. Mm -hmm. And there have been a number of cases that have been deadlocked 4-4. This one was not. It's 5-3. What do we take from that? Justice Kennedy voted with the liberals in this one. He obviously, he's a devout Catholic. I think it's actually pretty clear from his tone he personally finds abortion abhorrent. But when the court in 1992 upheld what it called the core of Roe, He said you needed to follow precedent, and that was the precedent. And he said to somebody I know at one point a long time ago, you know, women who have plenty of money can get an abortion. They can travel. They can get one anywhere they want. What I worry about is are the rights of poor women who don't have that luxury. And that, here I'm sort of telling you, some gossip in a way. It's it's legitimate (laughs) gossip. Supreme gossip. Supreme gossip. But I think that represents his thinking. But I thought it was interesting. The dissenters were Chief Justice Roberts and Alito and Justice Thomas, who wrote separately. It was interesting that Alito and the chief made their infuriated dissent based on procedural stuff. Because, in a sense, they're not going to get much attention. They made it not about abortion. But this case is about abortion. Absolutely. And and I just want to be clear, this is an expansion or at least a validation of abortion rights in America? I think that's right. That doesn't mean the battle is over. You've been around long enough to know that this battle is almost never over. So in about 10 more years or 15 more years, we'll expect it to come right back again. Well, it'll probably be part of the battle to confirm the next Supreme Court justice because this was a 5-3 decision. And and Tamara, just as an indication of how much of a high-profile issue this is, how charged of an issue this is, I was outside the Supreme Court waiting for Nina to come out and just watching the protests. And it was just like a swarm of people and they were cheering and blaring music on the on the side that's pro-abortion rights, just celebrating this victory. They were almost having like a dance party. But at the mm-hmm. same time, the people, mm-hmm. uh, you know, opposed to abortion rights were, were standing there. Uh, they, they had their own rally off to the side. There was no tension in terms of, uh, you know, any sort of like head-to-head conflict, but there was lots of yelling back and forth and just clearly two very motivated, very organized sides showing their presence here. And it seems like every time there's a Supreme Court vacancy or a Supreme Court appointment process, this is one of the top issues out there. That'll, that'll continue to be the case even after this ruling. And let's not forget, even if we had a, an Obama nominee on the court and it were 5-4, Justice Kennedy is 80. He's not going to live forever. Justice Ginsburg is is uh, 83. She's not going to live forever. Oh, come on. She exercises a lot. She does. She does 20 <laughs> push-ups a day. But That's I'm, more than I do. It's way more than I do. <laughs> but, you know, we have to talk actuarial realities here. This is part of the reason the Supreme Court continues to be a fight. And it might even be the motivating force for some voters outside of the usual ones in this election. I want to move on. There were two other cases of note today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, One related to guns. Yes. To try to make this simple, 
the question was whether an individual is not qualified to be able to buy a gun if he's been convicted of a misdemeanor of assault uh, in a domestic violence case without intent. There are many levels of intent. This is one of the lower levels. And the, the example Justice Kagan gave in the courtroom was, say, the husband throws a huge plate at his wife right next to her, and it hits the wall. And he doesn't, it doesn't hit her in the head, but he certainly knew it had a good possibility of hitting her in the head. Is that misdemeanor conviction of assault enough to deprive him of the right to own a gun? And the court said, Yes, it is, by a vote of uh, six to two. And the dissenters were really pretty interesting. It was Justice Sotomayor on the left and Justice Thomas on the right. Okay, I guess I have a really dumb question, which is, is it the law of the nation that if you have committed domestic violence, you... Yes, yes. Originally, it was if you had committed a felony, you couldn't buy a gun. Then it became a misdemeanor that you couldn't buy a gun. And the question here was how all-encompassing is this misdemeanor conviction. How much does it? And the answer is it does deprive you of the right to own a gun. So when they do a background check and it turns out you've been convicted of misdemeanor domestic violence assault, you are not qualified to own a gun. And the final ruling today was related to former Virginia Governor Bob McDonald um, and his public corruption case. Scott, what what was the ruling there? Well, just to set it up for Nina, uh, Bob McDonald really had a, an enormous fall. He was a high-profile attorney general of Virginia. He was governor of Virginia. He had been in shortlist conversation for Mitt Romney. And then he as was, VP. As, as, yeah, in 2012. And then he was charged with these uh, corruption crimes, which came out right about the time that he was leaving office anyway, because you can only serve one term as Virginia governor. And uh, the gist of the charges were that both he and his wife accepted all sorts of bribes, including a Rolex watch that got a lot of attention from a guy who was basically pushing uh, vitamin supplement-like products. And the guy whose name is Johnny Williams, he couldn't afford to do studies that would you know, make it look good. So he, he wanted the state of Virginia, the university scientists, to conduct a study. And um, Bob McDonald suggested to the health department that they might be interested in doing that. They never did do that. But he did host a big reception for Johnny Williams. At the governor's mansion. At the governor's mansion. He did put him in touch with with people, important people. He did accept loans and gifts worth a total of $175,000. But the Supreme Court said that even though that's extremely tawdry, it's not clear that it's a violation of the criminal law. What that means is that you know, for example, uh, Senator Bob Menendez from New Jersey has a case that could it's come, pending. Pending, it could come up for a trial in October, and he supposedly took trips and from a friend uh, who got some benefits ultimately from the government, or he sought to put him in touch with people to help him. Um, you know, that case could be a lot easier for Senator Menendez than it was yesterday. But this is definitely going to make corruption cases harder for the government to bring and in some cases, easier to defend. I I should add one other thing. Part of the reason they brought this case in the federal government, I think, is that there there were virtually no ethics rules in the state of Virginia at the time. So So they had to go to federal law in this Mm -hmm, case. mm -hmm. All right. Well, you can send those watches, too. (laughs) Get right on that, listeners. I'll Uh, take the Caribbean uh, vacations. mm, uh, That's pretty good. (laughs) 
All right, Nina, I know that you actually have to go report for the radio. Um, I do. So get out of here. Let's get out of here. Okay, bye. Bye. She's had enough. (laughs) So, Tam, I was in full SCOTUS mode today at the Supreme Court with Nina. Uh, But while that was going on, you were keeping tabs on a big campaign event, and that was Hillary Clinton and Elizabeth Warren campaigning together. And that's something we've all been very interested to see for a while now. For a whole bunch of reasons. Yes. I mean, Elizabeth Warren has become one of the most powerful voices in the Democratic Party. Uh, The people who love her, the type of people who love Bernie Sanders, you know, the more liberal wing of the party. And they're people that Hillary Clinton needs to get on board. Uh, what was the what was the scene like today? The other question was about chemistry yes. and whether these two politicians standing next to each other had chemistry. Um, what I can say, and and the reason for that is because there's VP talk uh, about Elizabeth Warren. And what I can say is that uh, they came up on stage together. The room was electric. Asma Khalid, our colleague, was there. She says it was absolutely over the top, unlike other Clinton campaign events she's been to before. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm here today because I'm with her. Yes, her. And what's notable here is that Elizabeth Warren did not endorse until the primary was essentially over. She stayed out of it, in part, I think, because she has this very strong credibility as this progressive hero. And and she would have been expected to endorse Sanders, but she didn't endorse him. And she was the only female senator who hadn't endorsed Hillary Clinton. She sort of saved her political capital until the moment where it would be most valuable, which was just as the primary was winding down. And initially, before she endorsed Clinton, she started attacking Donald Trump. And that is something she continued at the event today. You know I could do this all day. I really could. But, but I won't. I won't. Okay. One more. One more. Donald Trump calls African Americans thugs, Muslims terrorists, Latinos rapists and criminals, and women bimbos. Hillary Clinton believes that racism, hatred, injustice, and bigotry have no place in our country. She fights for us. So, so Tam, the crowd is really getting into it there. Osma told us that it was an electric vibe that the Clinton campaign hasn't had for a while. Um, Could Elizabeth Warren be too much of a good thing for the Clinton campaign in terms of whether or not she would be a fit for the vice presidency? As in, uh, you never want a candidate that your supporters are more excited about than you. That is a challenge. Um, There are other challenges uh, for Elizabeth Warren, one being that she is from Massachusetts, which is a state that has a Republican governor. And potentially, if she were to be the VP nominee, then she would be replaced by a Republican that could affect the balance in the Senate. Just to toss out a couple of other names that are being discussed, Tim Kaine. He is a senator from uh, Virginia. Um, He would be considered a safe choice for Clinton, and he uh, would not set progressive hearts aflutter. And, but and Kane was actually on Obama's shortlist back when he was Virginia governor eight years ago. And and worry not, podcast listeners, we will be talking lots at some point in the not-so-distant future about Donald Trump's uh, VP shortlist. Also of note, and, and we'll definitely get to this in the roundup later this week, Donald Trump is campaigning in Pennsylvania and Ohio this week uh, with a big speech about trade. And Scott, and you're going to be there. I'm about to get in a car to head there. All right. Hopefully I'll file in time to eat some from Brothers. We'll see how it goes. 
You better bring some back. I don't think it travels well. All right. Well, thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. We'll have more political coverage at nprpolitics.org and as always on your local public radio station. And thanks for sending recordings of your questions and comments to nprpolitics at npr.org. A few songs... Which you had been hoping for. Oh, yeah. So that's exciting. This is exciting. I hope they can carry a tune. So keep them coming, guys. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Scott Detrow, campaign reporter. And thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. 